Bringing you around the world, right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about behind the badge, going inside a cop's psyche. It seems more important than ever to understand what really lurks <laughs> behind the badge of a cop since we are more dependent upon them than ever, both in terms of the fact that the, our world is becoming more violent than ever in, as far as normal crime is concerned. And, of course, uh, we are going to be more dependent upon uh, police in case of terrorist attack. And uh, it would be a good idea. I'm sure we've all, most of you have all have had, presumably, uh, some contact with police in the form at least of a traffic ticket. I know I have. <laughs> and what really, you kind of wonder, you scratch your head, and I do, and wonder what really is going on behind there. Not that that's, and that's sort of a, a relatively mild situation where you're confronting a cop, but um, it's nice to sort of, Try to understand what really makes them tick. This is not RoboCop. Cops are made out of the same flesh and blood and frailties as the rest of us. The rest of us. So I was thinking that we would help, uh, as a help to investigate this topic, I would have on our guest, Dr. Lawrence Miller, because he just came out with a new book on the subject of police, although he's written some other books prior to this, um, and has other qualifications in regard to having investigated police. Um, he's the police psychologist for the West Palm Beach Police Department in Florida, and he is a consulting psychologist with the Federal Bureau of, of Investigation in Miami, and he is an instructor at the Police Academy, amongst his other credentials. The current book is Practical Police Psychology, Stress Management, and Crisis Intervention for Law Enforcement. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Dr. Carroll. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, it's, you know, obviously, I know we have an hour ahead of us, but I'm sure both of us, uh, from our different perspectives, could talk about the psyche of cops for <laughs> longer than that. But let's try to hit some of the highlights. Um, first of all, I'm interested... As you know, uh, you know, this being Dr. Carol's couch and all, I put my guests on the couch and try to understand at first um, what got them to be in the spot that they're in now, being an expert on whatever the topic is. And we were talking before the show, and you apparently um, went to school in New York, as did I. And I just wonder how you... Um, went from there to Boca Raton and, and particularly specializing in police issues. Well, now that I'm comfortable on your couch, it's actually um, uh, a, a rather involved story, okay. although things have sort of come full circle. My, my initial interest in psychology was actually in the brain and behavior, 
And my, a lot of my initial training, both as an undergraduate and as a graduate student, was in neuropsychology, which is the study of brain and behavior and the, the, the analysis and treatment of different kinds of brain syndromes. And more, more broadly, I've always been fascinated by how the, the complexity of the human mind is sort of underwritten by what goes on in a person's brain. And as a result of that, I actually uh, wrote a couple of books dealing more or less theoretically with different aspects of the, the brain and personality way, way, way back in the 90s. And when I did actually come to Florida, I came to Florida from New York where I had my training to take on a clinical position. So I became much more involved in treating individuals who actually had brain injuries and brain syndromes mm. of different types. And these ranged every, anywhere from... Uh, senior citizens with degenerative dementias like Alzheimer's to individuals who had had strokes uh, and the other end of the age spectrum to kids who had things like attention deficit disorder and other kinds of learning disabilities and also a lot of individuals who had been injured in different kinds of accidents, traumatic brain injuries. And I became very interested in studying how individuals cope with this type of a very specific kind of traumatic event because when the brain is injured, the the very organ that we use to cope with all the other stresses Mm. in our lives has been affected. And I began seeing more and more of these cases, and along with them, I I discovered that, you know, when someone injures their brain, typically there are other things that go along with it. Uh, They may have other kinds of injuries that cause chronic pain syndromes, which can be a, a stressful trauma in and of itself. And they also can be psychologically traumatized, either from the original injury that caused the the brain injury, whether it was a car accident or or a criminal assault or some other kind of traumatizing event, and also just from the the, the daily stress of dealing with this type of situation. And I uh, then really, having always had an interest in forensic psychology, which was my other uh, expression of brain and behavior, why... You know, some people's brains lead them to do things that the rest of us consider atrocious, whereas most of us, with our ordinary everyday brains, manage to do the right thing at least most of the time. Mm-hmm. I began um, getting involved in, cl- in uh, criminal forensic cases that had to do with uh, the brain and behavior from, from a different uh, point of view. In other words, what, were people criminally responsible for their actions based on various kinds of psychological and, and brain syndrome, which is a lot of the, the kind of work I imagine you do at your end. Mm-hmm. At the same time, again, dealing with uh, people who had been injured, I, I, I was uh, working with a lot of victims of crime and victims of, of accidents, and along with crime victims came mm-hmm. my involvement with uh, people who work at the other end of the, of, the, uh, of the spectrum, which were the emergency service workers, the firefighters, the uh, EMS guys, the, um, the ambulance drivers, and, and the police officers. I became very interested in the kinds of daily stresses and unusual stresses that they go through in their jobs. And I became the uh, clinical director of the um, Palm Beach County Critical Incident Stress Debriefing Team, which would actually go in when there was a particularly uh, unusually stressful or traumatic call involving these emergency service workers, these men and women who are trained to be tough guys most of the time and suck it up and do their job. Occasionally, when you have an event that's just so overwhelming, there's a, a structured form of brief intervention, as you probably know, called critical incident stress debriefing that kind of helps them get through it. And with that, my involvement with the uh, the police department grew, grew uh, greater and greater and more frequent until um, basically, I, I guess you could call it a field promotion. One night at 3 o'clock in the morning, I was told to come on scene uh, at, at the scene of a police shooting and was told that, you know, you've just been promoted to police psychologist, suck it up. Uh-huh. And that was basically my, uh, my, my, my appointment. And since then, I've worked in the field 
of police psychology is one of the things that I do. Wait, so that's interesting. So you experienced firsthand what the police have to do with these incidents by having to suck it up. Well, I, I suck that part of it up. I can't say I've experienced that that aspect of cause, uh, of of, uh, of uh, police experience because I'm not a I'm not a sworn police officer myself, and I haven't no, actually I, I mean, been just, there. But yes, right. I mean the idea of being called at a moment's notice right. and having to uh, sort of leap out of bed and, and, and right. be somewhere on the street before you're half awake, it doesn't happen that often, but it does, and and that's you know that comes with the territory. And so that, uh, you know, got me involved in other aspects of police psychology, which is anything from doing fitness for duty evaluations when an officer is being evaluated for his ability to continue doing a job to doing clinical interventions with police officers and their families for, you know, much of the same kinds of problems that you and I have with our families and our, our lives to responding to different types of emergencies, whether they're crisis intervention emergencies or critical incidents or, or things like that. And what's interesting is I still do some of the neuropsychology and I still do some of the um, uh, the chronic pain work and some of the, I guess you'd call, regular psychology practice. So things have uh, sort of come full circle. I, I find it in, you know, somewhat busy, but certainly intriguing to do a lot of different things and, and keep things interesting. Yes, well, it does sound very interesting. Um, I, mean, I, I guess you must find yourself, do you have conflicts of interest when, because, for example, um, I would imagine there's a similar situation in Boca Raton as there is here in Los Angeles and in New York, um, where there has, seems to be an increasing number of incidents um, where the police have been, um, lawsuits have been filed against the police for behavior that was questionable. So do you sometimes find yourself, I mean, now that you're sort of employed by the police department, do you find yourself um, in a courtroom defending police, you know, opposite another psychologist or psychiatrist who is on the side of a victim alleging police brutality, for example? Well, interestingly, I've never been in that particular situation where I've actually had to, you know, appear and testify either against or on behalf of of a police officer or someone who is filing a, a suit against a police officer. But, but I'm glad you raised that issue because it does bring up something that's important. And, you know, most of what most people learn about police work or about anything for that matter, we learn from television because, you know, that's what we, we, where we get most of our information. Right. But the, the police departments who have the lowest rates of complaints and the highest rate of, I guess you'd call it customer satisfaction mm-hmm. in the communities that they're in, try to make a concerted effort to practice what's known as community-oriented policing. That is, you, you go out there and you kind of know the neighborhood you work in, and you encourage as much as possible the, the citizens of your particular precinct or patrol area to see the police as resources they can depend on, not as adversaries they have to run away from. Now, that's easier said than done right. because, you know, in some neighborhoods there, there there's always going to be a certain amount of animosity and you're always going to have, you know, a certain uh, number of bad apples in any organization, whether it's a neighborhood, a police department, uh, among psychologists and psychiatrists or anywhere else. But for the most part, departments who take this kind of proactive stance uh, do much better in terms of policing their communities because, it, in turn, the, the citizens become uh, allies and the citizens become uh, people that the police can, can depend upon in in solving crimes and, and, and catching the real bad guys. Remember, people who live in a neighborhood want to be safe. And if they feel that cooperating with the police will help them be more safe, they'll do so. If they feel that cooperating with police or even interacting with police is going to be more trouble than it's worth, then they're not going to. So part of the responsibility is 
that of the citizens and part of is that of the police officers themselves. Well, is there, um, oh, we do need to take a break, but I, I, one of the questions that I'll, I guess you can answer when we come back is what kind of um, racial mixture there is in Boca Raton because I think maybe something like that is more successful in a place where there uh, is less uh, of an adversarial situation already sort of built in because of the racial mix of a population. That's an important question, and I hope we can address it when we come back. Sure. Well, stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. My guest today is psychologist Lawrence Miller. He is the author of a new book, Practical Police Psychology. We're talking about what goes on behind the badge of the police who are pledged to protect and serve. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadylocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors cried the second. I hope it has a bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org, and from energyhog.org she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy, and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org, or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkgaard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time. Invoke thought, feeling, and inspiration into your life right here on voiceamerica.com. Expand love and light in the universe. Tune into Miracles Happen, Dreams Do Come True with Iris Jackson every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Each week, Iris and her guests empower, encourage, affirm, acknowledge, and remind us of who we really are, providing tools and processes to fulfill our destiny passionately, victoriously, and joyously. Miracles Happen, Dreams Do Come True is under the guidance and direction of our beloved I Am Presence, the seven mighty Elohim, the ascended masters, and the legions of light, and is given with fervent and heartfelt wishes that all of your dreams come true and are a thousand times more wonderful than you ever dreamed possible. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about behind the badge inside a cop psyche. And my guest is Dr. Lawrence Miller, the author of a 
of several books, the newest one being Practical Police Psychology. Um, before the break, we were talking about, um, well, you brought up this concept of community um, policing, or I'm not quite using, what, what was the term that you... No, that is, that's exactly the term. Okay. It's either community policing or community-oriented policing, depending on how many O's you want to put in the initials. <laughs> All right. And I was asking about the uh, racial um, constituents of Boca Raton because it would seem to me that perhaps it works better um, in a smaller place like that with less tension uh, amongst different ethnic groups than perhaps in a place, in a bigger community. Well, it's, all, it's almost the opposite. Remember, uh, the, the West Palm Beach Police Department is, is in West Palm Beach, which is a larger city and a more ethnically diverse city mm. than, than small little Boca Raton. Okay. So if you want to talk about West Palm Beach, it's probably, I mean, it's a small to medium-sized city, but it's, it's got pretty much the, the same um, demographics of any, any major city. And the whole concept of community-oriented policing is that it shouldn't be specific to one particular demographic or racial or age group. The whole idea is to uh, encourage people who might not be sympathetic or may, may have been overly hostile uh, to the police, and, and many for excellent reason, to, again, see them more as a resource they can count on and than as an adversary. And, again, a lot of the, the, the responsibility comes from uh, both the, the police department and, and the individual officers and, and from the, the citizens themselves. Well, now, let's go behind the badge. Um, obviously, you've had a lot of opportunity to, as a therapist and um, in general in your work in the police departments, to have a lot, of, a lot more contact um, with police and, than, than most of us. And uh, I'm wondering what you have deduced after all these years uh, in terms of what actually does go on behind the badge and in their psyche. Well, it's interesting because the, when, I, when I mention that, I, that I'm in police psychology, the, uh, the two questions that usually pop into people's minds and that they ask me are, one, is there such a thing as a police personality? And the second thing is, I guess, a more practical question is, well, what's the best thing to do if I get stopped? And as far as the first question is, they, it's really impressive what a range of personalities police officers have. And if you think about it, that shouldn't be surprising. If you study people in any profession, if you study psychologists and psychiatrists, if you study airline pilots, if you study construction workers, you're going to find that you have all different types of people with all different types of personalities, ranging from very mellow to very irritable, from very serious to very humorous. And I guess the one thing that, that a police officer needs to have, or, or, or a certain set of skill traits that a good police officer needs to have, involve a certain tough-minded attitude and determination to get the job done, a certain commitment to the, the, both the role of policing and, and, and the goals of, of, of being a police officer, uh, a certain amount of integrity, a certain uh, ability and willingness to follow the rules, even though it may not be convenient to do so. But beyond that, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of the guys I work with, some of them are, you know, my patients, but remember, some of them are also my colleagues and some of them are my friends. And a lot of them are people who I would be, you know, happy to, to hang out with and be friends with under any circumstances. And some of them are people that I would never go near with a 10-foot pole, not necessarily because they're police officers, because that's just the kind of person they are. So, yeah, there's a certain selection factor that goes into both selecting and choosing and training and enculturating a police officer into that role, but it really is a diversity of personalities, and, and, and sometimes that's the benefit and sometimes that's the problem. 
Well, in my experience, and I have had some experience um, having police as patients, not presumably as much as you have, but and certainly having to deal with, uh, as a forensic psychiatry, court situations, trial situations, where um, I was on the side of the plaintiff um, in cases of police brutality. So I guess my experience is both um, personal in terms of sort of minor things, I mean traffic, but just uh, not just traffic, but little, you know, small issues, nothing, um, I really, it actually makes me um, fearful to think that my security, and one of the things that I say is that none of us should think that we should have a lot of self-reliance and we shouldn't be depending upon anybody, police or, or you know, um, anyone else, when it really comes down to it in terms of protecting ourselves from, uh, in case of terrorist attack or a major disaster, we, we can't really depend upon anyone, but to the extent that, we would like to have that extra layer, that buffer, where we hope to be able to rely upon the police to some extent. Um, it has been it has been really disconcerting to me to see some not you know yes you could say some rotten apples spoil the bunch or whatever, but um, it, it has been disconcerting to see that there are a lot of rotten apples. Well, it depends what you mean by a lot. My experience has been that the you know it's the squeaky wheel gets the grease. The the really really rotten apples are few and far between, and, and it's very important that that your listeners remember this: that the only people who hate bad cops more than you do are the rest of the good cops, and that's for a very practical reason. Because if I have a colleague who's doing things that are clearly out of bounds out there and antagonizing people, I may not go and and report it because of a certain feeling of solidarity. But I will do my best to discourage this guy from doing what he's doing because that puts me in danger. And unfortunately, the, the people, the few, the few, and we can argue about if there are many or few, but the few bad apples who are out there doing these rotten things are putting every other police officer in danger. Yeah. And these police officers know it. And there's probably a lot of informal um, cor- uh, correction by colleagues that goes on that never really comes to anybody's attention. Basically, a guy going up to another guy and saying, listen, cut this out. You're putting me in danger. Um, I want to do this between you and me, but if you keep it up, I'm going to have to report it. And the truly, truly, truly bad people who just can't be deterred by any means whatsoever are usually the ones who who come to some kind of attention. And again, although I guess you can have sort of random types of, of, of things happen, usually when you look at the jackets of the cops who have the, the, mo- the most number of complaints. It's usually a quantum leap beyond beyond the other people. Every cop, look, nobody can be liked by everyone, and if you work long enough in any field, somebody's bound to, to hate your guts. And that goes for whether you're a police officer or a mental health practitioner or anyone else. But the ones who are, you know, the quote-unquote bad cops, it's not an isolated incident. It's like one thing after another. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that eventually, I mean, the nice thing about it is eventually this does catch up with them. I mean, sometimes not before they've done a lot of damage. But it does catch up with them. And if you think about it, it's like malpractice in our field. I mean, we could probably get away with a lot of stuff uh, and and not have anybody know about it. But if we keep doing it, sooner or later, we're going to get some blowback. So I don't want people out there thinking that every time they see a police officer, okay, this must be the bad one. I mean, I'm not saying to be naive, but certainly uh, just like you would give your physician the benefit of the doubt, I mean, you know, you can certainly give the average bus driver the benefit of the doubt. That the same thing goes for any other kind of uh, public service worker, like a police officer. Well, I guess the thing is, the part of the problem is 
that when you're, you know, in kindergarten or grade school and um, you're learning about uh, what people do and, and you know, the, the cop is supposed to be the one that protects you and, and you, you have all these fuzzy feelings that get generated to them and it's just disillusioning. You know, it, maybe it isn't that there is such a great number of bad cops, but it's just that there's this disillusionment that any of them would be less than perfect. Well, I think as a as a psychiatrist, you hit the the kind of Freudian nail on the head because that's really what it is. Remember, we we relate to authority figures as parental figures. It goes for whether you're talking about a therapist, a doctor, a police officer. And when I actually teach at the police academy, what I what I try to tell these these police officers themselves is that even though they may not believe it, the public invests you guys with a tremendous responsibility. And when you do something that you just consider being average or human to the average person who's put a certain amount of, of faith and respect in, in police officers, that's going to that's gonna come as a, as a letdown. Right. And besides, I tell these guys, you out there have to be able to command a certain amount of respect to do your job because the truth is there's a lot more of them than there are of you. And if you give someone a direction or tell someone to do something, they have to do it out of a basic respect for you or at least the idea that you're prepared to back it up. Because if you don't have that respect, then you're going to have no credibility. It's going to make it ten times as hard for you and every other cop to do their job. So it's in your interest, even if you don't believe it philosophically, it's in your interest practically to maintain a certain amount of integrity. Because if you don't, you're going to lose any control you have out there on the street, and that can be deadly. Yes. Yes, that's true. Now, I'd like to talk about... um go a little deeper into the kinds of family backgrounds. Um, I mean, do you do, when you do therapy, including with uh, police, do you, or what, I guess I should have asked, what kind of um, school of thought as a psychologist do you, I mean, are you psychoanalytical or behavioral or? Well, it's interesting because if, if I had to characterize it, I would, I would probably call it archaeological. <laughs> and what I mean is it yeah. depends on the nature of the problem. I, I start off at a very basic uh, on the surface level. If, if, if a cop comes in and they have a particular problem related to job functioning or, or family functioning, first I see if there's a, a simple advice-oriented solution that can help. And a lot of times just knowing what to do in a practical sense can, can help solve the problem. And if that's the case, you know, one or two sessions and sort of almost like a, a coaching model is often very effective. If it becomes clear, and usually by the first or second time, it, it becomes clear that there are more personality issues going into this, either the uh, the officer's own personality or, or the other people involved, then you know something more is called for, and so we we deal with um, what individuals may be thinking, feeling, uh, getting in touch with those reactions, so they have a little bit of insight into how they're behaving and what they're saying, and, and so on. And in some cases, it uh, may turn into what most people see as traditional psychotherapy, where we talk about what events in in an officer's life uh, led up to this. What I found fascinating is a lot of officers will, much against the stereotype, uh, sort of plop down on the, in the chair and begin to describe personal things and experiences that mm-hmm. they've never told anyone. And when I'm sort of surprised that they sort of come out with this spontaneously, they say, well, you know, this is the first time I've ever had a chance to, to tell this to anyone. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to tell it to their colleagues. They're not going to tell it to their friends. In many cases, they won't even discuss it with their families. So if nothing else, the... The therapy session is is a is a is, is a way for them to to say things and express things that they might not ordinarily have a chance to do. But again, I, I try to 
give as much, you know, as much of a dose of therapy, so to speak, as is needed for the situation. You know, not too little and not too much. Well, when we come back, um, I would like to sort of delve into that a little more. Um, I have a psychoanalytic view of the world, and um, I'd like to talk to you about what you have found in uh, in terms of the family histories um, of these police who do plop down on your couch. So when we come back, we'll talk more with my guest, Dr. Lawrence Miller. We're talking about what happens behind the badge in the psyche of the police. And you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Bringing you around the world, right from your desktop, voiceamerica.com. Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race stars. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, politics, science, spirituality, and culture, who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional attainment in their fields, only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time to Jeffrey Gitterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. This week on Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo, Lake Bell from Surface joins us to tell us about the show, and TD-0013, our resident stormtrooper, joins us in studio to help us talk about the sci-fi that's happened this week. That's this week on Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo. Bringing you around the world, right from your desktop, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're having a, I'm fascinated today by uh, what we're talking about. The uh, inside a cop psyche, we're getting down and dirty and uh, going behind the badge. And that's what we were just starting to do with my guest, psychologist Lawrence Miller, the author of uh, his latest book called Practical Police Psychology. He's also an author on various websites, uh, writing a column, and we'll give you those at the end of the show, too. Um Let's go down to this family dynamics because I've had, you know, in the in the police that I have gotten to know on that sort of deeper level as patients or in evaluating them for lawsuits or whatever, um, I've developed my own theories and, and uh, about it. But I'd like to hear what you have to say. 
I'll, I'll, actually, I do want to hear your theories, but but let me let me sort of boil it down to to a to a simplistic generalization. I mean, uh, Einstein once said that everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. And I guess what I can do is most of the cops that I either know as just colleagues or that I've seen in, in treatment, the, the backgrounds tend to cluster in two main areas. And one is what I can call, I guess, the, the, the generational cop. I mean, these are individuals mm. who, uh, whose uh, family members were cops, their fathers may have been a police officer or in the military. Uh, typically, uh, many members of the family have been in the military, including the officer themselves. And this is your, your typical spit-and-polish, straight-laced kind of person who uh, goes out there and sees, you know, policing is just another way of, of expressing a, uh, a a desire to create more order and, and stability in the world, and 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 most of these guys and gals, you know, do a pretty good job of doing so. There's another group of uh, of, of officers who seem to have come from, I guess, what you could call your your quote unquote dysfunctional family. Uh, there's been a lot of contention. They may have had an overly strict parent. They may have been physically abused. Um, there may have been a lot of uh, substance abuse or alcoholism in, in, on, on the part of, uh, of the parents and particularly the father. And what a lot of these guys and gals do is they end up using a, a defense mechanism that, um, as you'll know from your interest in psychoanalytic theory, called sublimation. And what they've done is they've managed, and if you remember, sublimation was considered by uh, Anna Freud to be the healthiest form of defense mechanism, because you actually uh, take the, 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 lemon, the lemons and you make lemonade out of them. And what these guys and gals have managed to do is become just the opposite of the kind of environment they grew up in. They have a drive to do good. They want to see justice done. They are very uh, zealous in their commitment to the police role and see themselves as, you know, literally that thin blue line that stands between, you know, barbarism and civilization. So you have these, these two groups of individuals coming from very disparate backgrounds who end up kind of in the same place. And I always think it's a credit to someone who can take a background like that and, and make something positive out of it not uh, you know degenerate into the and follow the, the the dysfunctional family path, but actually pull themselves out and make something positive. Well, okay, you, you, I guess we must be treating the same cops. <laughs> um, I actually, you know, I, I pretty much. Uh, What's would, your theory? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, but I mean, I pretty much um, have seen the same thing, um, where where the generational cop. Um, and and I do tend to use he, but obviously we know, especially more and more, that there are women who are cops as well. But um, the generational cop um, is about honor. It's about carrying on this lineage of, um, of of police work and doing the family proud. And yes, they do tend to have less psychological problems uh, and come from a less dysfunctional family, although certainly the two groups do sometimes blend together because there can be uh, homes where actually, let's say, the father is a policeman and um, they, st- it still is a dysfunctional home. So it's, it's not totally separate. I mean, there is some, some uh, overlap. But um, what, what fascinates me about it is that um, particularly what I've seen is this dysfunctional home, the chaos. And being a policeman um, is about restoring order to the world because when he was growing, this little boy was growing up in his household, um, there wasn't order. It, yes, there could be 
substance abuse or there could be dysfunction of uh, abuse of of the a lot of physical abuse sexual abuse um just a very abusive households in one way or another and the the vision of growing up to become a cop is not just um uh you know to carry on the lineage if that is also one of those families but it's the idea of growing up to be able to protect himself to be able to be in control of the world, to to walk the beat, to be in control of the world. Well, that's exactly right. It's self-protection through through protecting others. You know, you you, you sort of reparent yourself by by being a protector of other people. Right, and it's it's acting out this unfulfilled need um, that you had as a child. There was no one there protecting you, and you then act out the need by being the one who... Um, is the protector for other people, and of course, these are the more um, the police that do tend to get into more trouble um, than one who is just carrying on the lineage. You know, well, the, the, the truth is, the police who tend to get into more trouble, and I'm talking about consistent trouble. Uh, really, you you can't really give them the excuse of a, of a developmental history because these guys are your pure antisocial personalities in uniform. I mean, and, and there are you know, although hopefully they're, they're rare. There are antisocial personalities and psychopaths in any field. And if they're not taking advantage of their badge, they'll be taking advantage of their medical license or taking advantage of their, their CEO status at a corporation to basically, you know, see people as, as chumps to be taken advantage of. Uh, that, that's, not, that's not the ones that I'm really talking about because the, the main vulnerability factor for the cops who may be a little bit overzealous in keeping order is when they feel like they, they haven't measured up, they can become tremendously demoralized. And most of the, you know, quote-unquote breakdowns that I see in police officers is usually because they're overreacting to, you know, a perceived failure on the job that has completely demoralized them because they've convinced themselves that they have to be perfect. And most police officers, you know, like, like to be as perfect as possible, and, and nobody feels good when they feel that things have gone bad. But you have certain individuals who are more than usually vulnerable to this, and these are the ones you have to watch out for because these are the ones who are most prone to depression and, uh, and other uh, problems when, when they feel that they haven't measured up. But the real predatory officer, uh, the one that everybody is scared of, the one that they make all the movies about, right. you know, the, the, the evil cop, they are very rare. I mean, people should be reassured that there aren't too many of them. And typically, uh, they're not going to get depressed because they're too, too busy mm-hmm. sort of, you know, happily ripping people off to, to be upset about, about anything. And, and hopefully most of those are, are weeded out eventually. Yes. Um, and the other cops don't like them either. But there is also, I mean, yes, I agree with that, but there is in, in, the, in the cops who come from these dysfunctional homes, because um, it is sort of a defense mechanism that has caused them to, to want to be in control of their world since they weren't as children, Sometimes if, there, if an event happens or um, cumulative stress on the job, because they're really protected, there's, there's a part of them, just like in all of us, what it, you know, uh, we reflect there's a part in us from our childhood still, um, there's a part in them that still feels like that little abused boy or that little unprotected boy and um, who can in um, dangerous or stressful situations um, revert back to that if their defense fails. I'm sure that can happen, but in my experience, um, I, I, I 
rarely have seen a case where, you know, where everybody seems to be afraid of that suddenly um, some flashback of the past is going to happen during a traffic stop and, and some cop is just going to, you know, snap and start <laughs> blasting away. Uh, I have never personally heard I, of a I, case I like really that. Mean, I don't really mean you know, that. Nor have any of my colleagues ever heard of a case like that that actually happens. I, I don't mean necessarily blasting away. Perhaps these people are the ones who, when their um, defense mechanism fails, they become more depressed. There's also, you know, I wonder if you could talk but, but, to But you do raise an interesting question because insecurity leads to having an attitude. And a lot of times, you know, when I tell people that I work in police psychology, one of the, the, the two questions they ask me invariably are, are the one you just asked me and we've been discussing, which is there anything like a standard or stereotype police personality? And the other question they ask me is, you know, what do I do if I get stopped? What's the best way to behave? And, of course, the answer to the second question is, is going to depend on where you are, who you are, and what kind of situation you're in. Well, well, we'll get to that second question after the break, but I just want you to say a few words about paranoia because we can't talk about childhoods of police without mentioning something about paranoia. What has been your experience? Remember the phrase that just because you're paranoid, it doesn't <laughs> mean they're not out to get you. Right. And paranoia, well, I won't even call it paranoia because paranoia implies a clinical disorder, but suspiciousness is part of every police officer's mindset. Remember, the, most of the encounters, w one of the reasons for the community-oriented policing movement was, was from the officer's end. If you don't have that approach, then the only time you really interact with citizens is when they're doing something wrong, you know, when you're interdicting something or arresting them. And, you know, a lot of times if you, they're caught doing something wrong, they're going to lie to you, they're going to try to get over on you, they're going to run away from you, they're going to attack you. So a certain amount of suspiciousness about people's actions and about people's motives comes with the territory of being a, a law enforcement officer, much more so than in, uh, you know, a field like, like yours and mine, where at least most of the time we assume that people are trying to tell us the truth. So I, I would only be paranoia if there was no basis for it. Remember, paranoia is suspiciousness when there's no grounds for it. And, you know, the thing that's, that, that's interesting when you try to train cops in terms of the mental mindset is to maintain a level of suspiciousness that's going to be protective, but not to the extent that they're going to misread cues and end up overreacting, and that's the challenge for any of us. Yes, and especially um, when, they're, when the police would have come from a background where they have had to be hypervigilant to protect themselves. Yeah, but again, people grow into their job and they grow up with their job. And it's very important to realize that, that the point you start with is not necessarily the point that you end up with or become. <laughs> You're so pro-police, I can't get you to... <laughs> I'll, actually, if you like, I'll make a few anti-police statements a little later. In, in the interest of full dis disclosure. Oh, it's not that I'm anti-police. I just wish that... I, I think that th more things do need to be done and we can perhaps... Try to squeeze that in in the last segment as well to um, to police the police, you know, to make sure that we do have people who are able, are going to be able to protect us um, in as we are at more risk of greater disasters. So. It's not that I'm pro police. It's that I, I'm actually very skeptical. Wait, wait, uh, we're I, hearing music. Okay, <laughs> that does mean we need to we need to stop, but. Um, but I guess maybe you can tell us also uh, whether there are things that you're working on to help police pol the police. Well, that's interesting because I'll tell you about some of the training that I'm doing at the police academy. Okay, great. We do need to take the break. They're policing us as well as we speak. You're or listening busted. to yes, we're li you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Dr. Lawrence Miller, and when we come back, we'll talk more about policing the police. 
Unlimited talk at your fingertips. VoiceAmerica.com. West Coast Business Review and host Amy Campbell present Show Me the Business. Each week, you'll hear exciting guests give you vital information on advancing your business and career. Learn how others have built their empires, from best-selling authors to renowned entertainers. Listen every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific time on VoiceAmericaRadio.com. Visit our website at www.WestCoastBusinessReview.com. West Coast Business Review's Show Me the Business, connecting you to the business world. World-renowned cosmetic surgeon and scientist, Dr. Andrew G. Berman, hosts Beauty in America, broadcasting every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America channel. What is beauty? How is it viewed in a cross-cultural context? And what is the role of plastic surgery in society, careers, and life? Expert guests join Dr. Berman to discuss historic and current concepts of beauty and plastic surgery, as well as trends, advances, and gimmicks. Beauty in America with Dr. Andrew G. Berman finds out what is real and what is hype right here on the voice america channel fridays at 2 p.m the results indicate your child has neuroblastoma there's evidence of metastasis need to schedule a bone we'll need to perform a surgery after you hear your child has cancer chances are you don't hear anything else CureSearch.org connects you to the most comprehensive research and advice on childhood cancer and to other families who know exactly what you're going through. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show... Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. We have so much I knew at the beginning that we were to have much more than we could cover in an hour, but that's kind of always the way it is. Let's um, try to talk about um, one thing about what to do when you're stopped, but also about this whole issue of um, policing the police because I was uh, under the mistaken impression, um, apparently, that they were hiring gobs of police to protect us against terrorism. But my guest today, Dr. Lawrence Miller, apparently was informing me during the break that that really isn't so, not gobs anyway. Well, you have to remember, who's hiring the police? Police work for a variety of different agencies. They work for cities, they work for states, they work for counties, they work for the federal government, they work for agencies within agencies. And all of these agencies, God bless them, have budgets. And it's an expensive proposition to hire and train and supervise a police officer. What they're trying to do in, in many police departments is similar to what they're trying to do in the military, which is retention. They're trying to keep uh, mm. a lot of these guys and gals from retiring, maybe staying on and, uh, and, and, and uh, working for some extra time. Yeah, there, there is some new rehires, but it's not like there's this massive drive to hire hundreds and hundreds of thousands of new cops. Um, that's just not happening. Okay, well, is there something going on um, currently for however many gobs we have currently? Um, you know, it's really kind of actually what you just said is a very worrisome statement, not to just jump off from that because we certainly should be hiring a lot more. With, I mean, this is just another example of the denial. I mean, yes, I know money is a factor, but <laughs> they're hiring, uh, you know, this, all the money that they're spending in Iraq, somehow it seems to me that they could have, 
kept some of it at home. See, Halliburton... Well, well let me suggest something, because we're talking about responding to terrorism. And remember, responding to terrorism, uh, terrorism is basically a combination of a natural disaster, a criminal attack, and an act of warfare. Mm. And basically, many of the, 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 much of the training that these already existing gobs of cops have involves dealing with many of these factors. So it's not that we have to hire brand new specialist you know, anti-terrorist type cops, but just increase the amount of training that the already existing officers have to, to, to interdict this kind of threat. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, even since 9-11, how many uh, actual terrorist acts have there been around the world compared to how many acts of ordinary everyday crime? And the answer is minuscule. So it's not like we have to hire these thousands of new cops to prepare for these acts of terrorism because well, they're still in the minority. Well, that that's another show because... Uh, <laughs> Because you know, I think that they, these acts of terrorism that are in the that have been minuscule in the states up to now since 9/11, um, I don't think it's going to be staying that way. But let's since we don't have that much time, let's go to the um, what to do when you get stopped. Well, it's re- it's really pretty simple. It's not like there's a you know a script that you have to follow. Uh, and again, it depends who you are and what situation you're in, and so on. But in general, the best thing to do is show the officer a certain amount of respect. And expect a certain amount of respect for yourself. When, when I tell people, you know, show respect, what what they think I mean is they have to kowtow and, 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 and toady to the officer. And that's not the case. You can be dignified. You can uh, have respect for yourself. All you need to do is comply with the request that the officer is making as the same way as you would re- re- comply with your doctor's request when they were doing an examination. So, you have to take your clothes off? Uh, not, not on most traffic stops that I've known about. But in, if that works... Well, since we're talking about Freudian fantasies, that may have to be another show. But, but in general, if, uh, if, if, if you don't give an officer an attitude, most officers are not going to give you an attitude back. If, if the officer tells you to do something, you do it. You don't have to say yes, sir. You don't have to bow and scrape. If you're asked to show license and registration, simply do so. Move slowly. That's pretty much the, 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 the guide word. If it seems like a tense situation, then announce what you're going to do. You know, officer, my license is in my front pants pocket. I'm going to use three fingers, pull my wallet out, and show you my license. Pretty much even a suspicious officer is going to relax a little if you tell them what you're going to do and then follow through in a slow kind of way. And, you know, most of the time what I find annoying the few times that I've been stopped is how over-polite some of these officers are, almost like they're, they're being polite to a fault. Like, you know, hello, sir, do you know why I stopped you? Uh, can I have your license registration? Have a nice day. Does he really think I'm going to have a nice day after I was just given a ticket? That's, that, that's what I want well, to know. Well, don't you personally, I mean, you must not have this problem now, because don't you show them some kind of uh, casually let them seize in your wallet, some kind of police, uh, official police something? Well, I'll, 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 I'll tell you a dirty little secret. I, ha- I have my ID card from the police department. And I actually never thought of using it because, in fact, I mean, I'm not a sworn officer. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a consultant with a police agency. Okay. And then one day I had one of my patients describe how he, uh, his brother is a cop in a different city, and he carries around a photocopy of his brother's ID. <laughs> and, uh, and, and one time he pulled it out, the, and the officer said, well, I'm not going to give a, a ticket to the, to the, to the family of, of another, uh, mm. of a cop. Mm. So I said, wait a minute. If this guy has a, um, uh, you know, a photocopy of his brother's ID. Let me see what happens next time. And so next time I just said, well, you know, look, officer, uh, it, it was a parking lot, and maybe I didn't stop at the stop sign, and, you know, um, you know, we, it, here's my uh, my ID. He looks at me and he says, have a nice day. Yeah. 
And again, you know, look, I, I don't encourage this kind of thing. I think people should obey the law. If anything, officers of the law should obey the law and not use their their authority to you know to get out of uh, tickets or anything else for that matter. But um, in general, for the average citizen, if you are respectful, if you expect respect, if you explain yourself, there are cops who will let you go and, and just give you a warning. I mean, remember, the cops want to do things the easy way, just like most of us want to do the things the easy way on our job. If it looks like it's going to be more trouble than it's worth to ticket you, then the officer, unless you've done something really egregious, if it's a borderline kind of case, is probably going to let you go with a stern warning. Well, I've had some interesting experiences uh, being stopped, but I actually have where something, sometimes when I've done things that I, uh, or said things where I thought it would have uh, one effect, and it sometimes has, I mean, sometimes I've said the most outrageous things and, and the cop has let me go. Um, like, um, that I couldn't, I couldn't, um, stop at a stop sign because I was holding the phone and a sandwich. I mean, I was holding something in each hand, so I couldn't really stop. But, you know, you, you, you raise an interesting point, and this whole discussion does, because think about it. Police officers, most of what police officers do every day is pretty routine, but they are empowered. In fact, they are the only non-military profession that is empowered as part of their job to use deadly force in the course of their job. Not only that, they are empowered to use coercive force against citizens. If you are lying on the ground bleeding and an ambulance worker comes over and wants to treat you and you say no, he is not allowed to treat you against your will. No doctor is allowed to perform a medical procedure against your will if you are competent and refuse treatment. However, a police officer can order you to cross the street, get out of your car, do any number of things, they are the only profession that is authorized to use coercive physical force. On top of that, in many of these situations, they have to rely on their discretion because many of the, the circumstances they encounter don't have clear-cut rules. So, you know, you talk about stressful job situations. You've got a situation where you are, are permitted, in some case uh, mandated, to use coercive force against citizens to make them do things they don't want, and it becomes a matter of your own judgment when to use that force in an appropriate way. And as a citizen, anything that you and I can do to make that job a little easier for that officer is probably going to be in our benefit. Well, you know, I'd love someone to do, and maybe these have been done, um, but I have this this uh, intuitive feeling that because stopping people now at traffic stops has become so much more dangerous for cops, um, I will bet that there is more of a tendency for them to stop people who don't seem like they would be a threat to them, as much of a threat, notably uh, women compared to men. And I, do you know whether there's been any such studies? Um... Well, I don't know if there's been any studies on who they stop, but you are right about one thing. It is, it is absolutely known that the single most lethal factor in the death of cops on the job is the traffic stop. The second, the second most lethal one is uh, domestic uh, abuse call, because the thing with the traffic stop is you don't know who you're going to stop. Most people, most many stops occur at night. Many people have tinted windows. Uh, many officers are shot by people who look innocent enough until you know some kind of interaction happens. And so when that officer looks like he's giving you the third degree and, and treating you like um, you know Jack the Ripper, there may be a reason for that. He's he or she is just being cautious. And again, this is not an excuse for an officer to abuse. Use his author- her authority, and I want to make that clear. Uh, you, you have no obligation to to take gratuitous abuse, and if you do, you are encouraged to file an appropriate complaint. 
But you have to understand that when, when an officer treats you in a certain way, it's probably not personal. It's not that he doesn't like you. It's he or she is being cautious because he knows things about a traffic stop that you yeah. don't because yeah. you simply don't work in this particular kind of field. Yes, it's really his own fear that uh, that something um, unexpected is going to happen. I mean, I've been stopped maybe a handful of times, and each time it's been completely different from very polite and gracious to snotty and nasty, and, yes. and there's really no way to predict it from, from, from stop to stop. See, that's your next book. You have to write um, <laughs> the different kinds of personalities of cops and what to do to uh, to uh, <laughs> with each type. <laughs> the, the ABCs of traffic stops. The right. Talking about books, give people the um, the website where they can go uh, to get your book. The website is www.cctomas.com. And you can uh, find that information about the book, and you can contact me through that website as well. And the book, again, is Practical Police Psychology, Stress Management, and Crisis Intervention for Law Enforcement. And uh, the name of a website that was particularly interesting, one of the ones where um, you, Dr. Miller, does um, give answers to police officers' wives, really uh, interesting questions, is handcuffedhearts.com. And it's handcuffed-hearts.com. Um, so go to that as well and check that out. Very interesting. Thank you very much for being here. I, I uh, Obviously, there's a lot behind the badge, <laughs> a lot more than an hour. Behind the badge and under the cop, and uh, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed this interview very much. <laughs> well, you're very welcome. And again, um, Dr. Lawrence Miller, my guest. And um, you can go to, his web, well, to the website to check out his latest book. And uh, cctomas.com, those are the letters, cctomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, dot com, and handcuffed-hearts.com for his column for Police Wives. So thank you very much for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 